All righty. Today I'm joined with Jessica, um, and you're going to have to help me with your last name, Jessica. Ronison? That's it, Ronison. Ronison. Okay, I was close. <laughs> Jessica Ronison, all the way from South Africa. Um, and Jessica is in the field of social work, and she's also um, pursuing her PhD at the moment as well. Um, so, Jessica, do you want to give yourself a quick intro? Sure, no problem. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really exciting to be doing some, some speaking from across the other side of the world. And I think there's just such value that can come from sharing thoughts and ideas. So I'm really privileged to be able to share with you and your listeners today. So just a, a quick background, some of which I'll speak to more throughout our interview and time together. But I am a social worker. I'm living in South Africa in Johannesburg, the, the capital. Um, and we in South Africa are in, a, in an interesting like, place in our, our history where there's a lot of need for help, just like any country. And I think for, for myself going into social work, we'll speak more about that. It's my sixth or seventh year now being a social worker by profession. And I can say from a background perspective that picking a career has been one of the like stories of my life actually and so I'm privileged to be able to share that with you I don't want to give away too much so yeah, yeah, yeah. that's me I live here with my with my husband and we are um, very excited about what it means to be in South Africa and building into Africa so that is that's a nutshell for you awesome awesome so what is social work at its core so there is a global definition of social work, which I thought would be helpful to start this conversation. It's quite a new definition. It only came out in 2014 out of this need to define what social work actually is. And that definition has a few components to it. It, it speaks to social work being a practice and a profession, but also an academic discipline. And it's, in the definition, it says it's, social work is social change, it's development, it's social cohesion, and it's empowerment. So those words, they, they sound big, and they are big in many ways, because when you're talking about a global, from a global perspective, social change is needed everywhere. The idea of social cohesion means working and living together harmoniously. Um, and the idea of empowerment or the liberation of people actually talks quite a bit to people that are, are suppressed or oppressed. And that happens often, surprisingly, even in countries where freedom is um, promoted. South Africa is an example where we have the most incredible constitution, um, but inequalities still exist. And so social work is an incredible field because it encompasses change and seeks to, in theory and in practice, promote well-being. So I think it's difficult to define social work because it, there are so many different social issues, but ultimately it is about enhancing well-being and promoting respect of, of people. So yes, cool, it's not cool. what you see in the movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think my first impression of I guess social work was more of, I guess, a therapist in a way of just, um, yeah. of just like, oh, 
uh, you know, the stereotypical therapist office of the the uh, participant just laying down, reclining on this chair while like telling the therapist their problems. But I I I, I see the difference in how how social workers can be more of a macro level um, job and um, also the micro level aspect of it too. So going into that micro versus macro, what are some of the different avenues that um, social work has to offer that you can take? Definitely, it's such a good question and it's important to define social work and, and look into the avenues because social work is so much more than charity work. I think that's often the, the perspective or, or therapy and although therapy plays a huge part of many social workers' roles, um, there is so much more. Um, the movies often tend to depict social workers also very much in the adoption kind of space mm, yeah. um and so just to answer your question so the the first kind of um route for a social worker to go would be child protection and adoption and that would be where the movies get their get their um, prototypes from where a social worker will advocate for a child that's neglected or abused or in need and it's an incredible field um, and I, I really take my hat off to social workers who go down that avenue because it is hard and burnout is, is noted in that field specifically. You also get avenues such as marriage and family services and that would also be um, a therapeutic role but you often see group work and really incredible family services being offered um i know america has made huge progress in the parent education space and um and sector and those social workers are doing amazing work um you also then get social work that works with the elderly and palliative care this would include health so you get social workers that work at hospitals and and assist families really with processing and dealing with the idea of chronic illnesses or illnesses that like may may result in a death where you'd need to be preparing for end of life there's a huge role for for palliative care the elderly also do rehab and there's very much like a multidisciplinary team that goes on when you speak to health and it's an amazing opportunity for social workers to once again enhance well-being so yes um a lot of advocacy also goes on from a south african perspective anyway in terms of cancer patients and um, children with hiv that's a huge issue for us here in south africa and so we see different areas no matter what country you're in but different areas tackling different illnesses and, and public health issues which social workers could then take a macro social change perspective on the next avenue would be school school social work education social work um, this often links very closely with community development and the idea really behind going the community development route is that change can happen in groups and communities have a lot more resource a lot more resources than they give themselves credit for often and social workers are trained to be linkers to see and meet needs and often the needs exist and the resources exist within the communities within these schools and it's an incredible process to watch this happens to be the, the field i've gone into so 
I am slightly biased, but I do see an incredible value of linking micro, meso, and macro. So like this, the one-on-one -on -one intervention with the group work interventions that social workers do with the large-scale community advocacy that can happen. And it fits quite nicely into this stream. I have two more avenues for you. Um, and the next one would be probation. And obviously countries differ in terms of their legislation and the way that they run their social justice system. In South Africa, we have a social justice system which allows people to be processed through the criminal, just criminal system and you can be assigned a probation officer. Usually a probation officer would be a social worker in South Africa anyway. And the last um, avenue would be substance abuse. So working at a drug rehab or some kind of a facility that deals with therapy. Again, it's therapeutic, but with a very specific focus. So yes, generally a bachelor's would allow you to practice in any field. In South Africa, um, it does. But um, obviously different personalities thrive in different fields. And I'll speak more to that at some point. But as you progress through your studies, if you were to proceed to master's or, or PhD, then you, you really do hone, generally, you would hone your skill set. And, and I guess that would be true for many fields. Yeah, that's interesting what you said about um, proba probationary officers being um, social workers in South Africa, because um, I may be wrong about this, but um, I feel like the, the probation officers in, in America, at least, tend to just be police officers um, with very little, if any, um, social work background. Um, and, wow. I, and I think um, that tends to just be more of a job rather than a social um, activist kind of role, being a probationary yes. officer. Um, so that's interesting sure. how South Africa does that. And I think it's, it's a good idea um, because um, a big problem in America that um, people um, talk about a lot is how our, our justice system um, doesn't give that second chance that people necessarily need and that it's kind of like if you if you um, are incarcerated it kind of ruins your chances the rest of your life for um, opportunities that other people that have not been incarcerated have so you're kind of stuck in this hole um, and it's hard to get out of um, so it's wow. cool how South Africa actually does that Definitely. Um, there's, there's a unique term we use um, called restorative justice, and um, it speaks to that idea of being able to restore, there's still justice, but being able to restore your life um, in various ways um, through healing and well-being. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think we're that's, definitely doing something right there. Yeah, I think, I think that is a, a more recent movement that we've seen in America. Mm. Um, and I think there's definitely going to be progress in that, that field. And um, it'll be interesting to see um, what happens with that in America. But for, for you personally, what kind of got you into this social work field? And, and as you talked about, you said that you, were, you, more, you work more on the educational side and the school side, right? Sure. So I can't say that I grew up wanting to be a social worker, but I've always loved working with people. I've always been very social and um, outgoing. I'm an extrovert by nature. So being social came very naturally to me. And I think when you ask why social work, 
I often think to myself, well, it fits so well with my personality. And I think that's um, part of the story that I would like to start to share with you and your listeners is that finding a career is very much about understanding who you are and what makes you tick. Um, and for me, that was, that was a, a lesson and a journey I took. Looking back, I can reflect on these decisions and often I made them based on, I want to say what felt right, but they were, it was confirmed to me over and over that this was a career that suited me because, and I was grateful for that. And a lot of it's links to the practical experiences that I had from a young age. I would get very involved with community projects and outreaches, um, whether it was through our local church or through our community centers around our, through our school. I was um, one of those people that just loved to sign up for activities and or to just be involved. And I think participation matters no matter what field you're in, whether it's the sciences or business or education, um, health, welfare, wherever, um, the more you participate in your sector, the more you begin to understand and experience what it's like to contribute, I suppose. Um, and I suppose as a young teenager, I didn't know what it actually meant to be a social worker, but I loved the idea of contributing. And the exposure promoted this idea of giving back and giving of myself in a way that felt natural. So it was never really difficult for me to be a social worker. A lot of people have said to me throughout my studies, oh my goodness, like how could you, how could you go that route? Isn't it heartbreaking? And it is sometimes. Um, and the needs are greater than what the resources are often. Um, and there is a, a process of, of realizing how to sort of separate yourself from the needs of people to do a job, but also being able to connect and be authentic with a person. And that's a journey. I feel like I'm still on that journey, but it, it answers your question, why social work? Because I think if I didn't go into a career that was socially orientated, I would have been denying myself the opportunity to express something that came really naturally to me. And often mm -hmm. people in helping professions say something similar, not quite a calling exactly, but this feeling of what I do fits within me. I feel like I can do this. So I don't, I'm not faking it when I, when I genuinely interact with people and it doesn't drain me to do it because it's something that's a part of me. So Maybe it seems slightly abstract, um, but I would say that practical experiences and exposure did promote this decision for me. I think that's maybe the most concrete answer I could give. Yeah, was it, were there any specific point in time where you first realized, whoa, like I can do this as a job? Like I didn't know this was like a career path that I could take. Yes. Interestingly, I had one or two friends who had studied social work I want to say friends, people in my community who had really been role models to me throughout the years. And I'll never forget in my final year of high school, we call it um, in the matric year, that would be the equivalent of, of a senior year. I sent her a message, this, this one girl that I, I really looked up to and I, I asked her like, do you recommend that I study social work because I'm looking into this and I really feel like it could be an amazing career. 
And her answer was so honest and so raw, but I remember her saying to me, it, it's been the most incredible personal journey of her life is going down this road of social work. She's learned so much about herself and her family. And for that alone, it's been a really valuable experience. And I think there was this moment after hearing her say that, that I realized it was really what I made of it in terms of my own personal journey. Um, and people join courses and start careers for various reasons. I think I naively believed that there was a lot of funding available in life for a person that worked hard. Yeah. <laughs> that was my, that was my uh, undergrad naivety, I think. Um, only to realize very much in the real world that people, well, it is easier to make money in business than it is in the business of people, if that makes sense. It does make so sense. So yeah. it's difficult to it's difficult to motivate why there should be funding put towards, let's say, a family like reunification process where, for example, um, a mother and father have gotten divorced and they're wanting to get back together. But that process is actually labor intensive and requires funding and requires, um, there's, there's a value behind the skill set of that kind of mediation and the therapy, the group sessions. And yet, I want, not that people don't want to pay, there are, there are people that do pay for these services, but it's a difficult industry. And more and more, I'm noticing how challenging it is to motivate for funding into a social development space. Um, there are grants and there are charities, there are nonprofits that are doing amazing work, but in a global system where everything is very much motivated by funding, it's, it's difficult and NGOs are struggling. For sure, for sure. I could totally see how that's definitely hard to get funding. And on that note of funding, is there um, government policy that does enable the government to fund certain in initiatives mm -hmm. of social work? Definitely. And I think in South Africa, we've seen huge steps forward in that regard. It does come with its red tape and it does come with a lot of paperwork. Um, if you've ever met a social worker, that's the person you want around you when you need to do paperwork or insurance documents or your taxes, because social workers have this um, yeah, ability, or I want to say through trial and error, have figured out how to do large amounts of paperwork at once. Um, and that's an incredible skill set um, and valued, might I add. But um, it's quite difficult when it comes to government funding because you need to meet very, very specific criteria. And a lot of, well, anyway, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And people are fearful often of going down the government funding route because because of the labor intensive administration processes and um, sometimes private funding is actually just quicker and more simple, as sad as it is to say that. But the funds are there and there is great work being done. So yes, I suppose it's, a, it's an and and a but at the same time. Right, right. So um, you, you talked about how you've been in the field professionally for around six years now. So what do you specifically do in the social work field? 
That's a good question. So I'm definitely not your average social worker. Um, I've been working in early childhood development for the last, as I said, six or so years. Um, early childhood is the years between naught and six. So from birth till six years where you would, I suppose, categorize these children as preschoolers. The new terminology is early childhood development, really moving away from the idea that children need to be babysat during this age group, but actually they need to be stimulated, they need to learn, but they also need to be cared for and protected. And so there's a child protection element, which is where you can see the social work part strongly coming in, but there's also this idea of education and development. And I went through my master's and I'll speak more about this later also, but there, through my master's I researched parent education programs as a tool for early childhood development and it was quite incredible to see the growth and progress that can happen within a field that links teachers, parents and children. So I would say if you ask me what I do, I um, I equip and I empower, I train and I write about how at an early age, empowering teachers, equipping parents and developing children is what's best for everyone involved. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So uh, I, I'm not sure how it works in South Africa, but what is the average age, I guess, where parents start to send their child to preschool or kindergarten or whatnot? Mm. So it differs from area to area, and that's in some ways part of the problem. But the compulsory year to send your child to school is six years old, mm -hmm. and then they enter formal schooling at seven years old, which might be a little older than what it is on your side. Um, I know in the UK, they start schooling from around five, six years old. Yeah. So in, in some ways, we you could critique the South African model as waiting for children quite late. But the, the theory behind that or the, the idea is that by giving children more opportunity to play to mm. in preschools, that they're learning organically, um, but in a lot more informal context. And because we're aligned with a system that requires children to be older in order to get to school many children have to walk really far um, in in south africa mm. we have like urban and rural contexts so you can't really send a five-year-old to walk right. to school so there are some socio cult like political issues sitting there as well so the idea of early childhood development in south africa has been slow for the outset only from about 1994 were white and black children allowed to be schooled together and so it's been a, a transformative kind of decade and a bit as we see um, the gap in inequality of education in our country but it also means that you get these pockets of really quality preschools and you get these pockets of preschools that are really needing massive support, but the schools are full because there are lots of children. So in some way, this is a supply and demand situation. Um, I know I'm going the long way around with this question, but we see children as young as a year old in a, in a preschool or an ECD center, um, going all the way up to six years. Um, 
but then you also see parents keeping their children at home for a really long time because they can't all afford to send their children to school. So then they only send them to school for the compulsory year. And that's part of the problem. So again, this double issue of um, the ones that are in school and the ones that are not. So, so you talk about um, that, that price tag that goes with along sending your children to school. Do you mean by just like transportation wise or do you mean actually paying tuition and fees and such? Yeah, and both. So tuition um, also varies from area to area and parents are well below the, or well below if not on the poverty line for the majority of South Africans. Our average annual income is 29,000 rand a year so if I could probably do a conversion of sorts for you but that would probably be would that be like two thousand dollars oh wow a year which is not a lot yeah not a, yeah not a lot at all yeah 18 oh even less <laughs> so it's it's not a lot at all and that's their their whole income so to then put a child through school on that income is also a challenge. Schooling is free from seven years if you attend a government school. So, and that many, many children do go that route. Mm -hmm. Some of the schools have excellent quality, but obviously you're dealing with quantities of scale here. And um, it's a difficult one when teachers don't arrive or where children are sick um, often or where they don't make it's to school on time for various reasons and they miss school. We see these problems having huge impacts um, throughout the schooling system. Anyway, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but I hope it's an interesting kind of conversation because it is a very different world from perhaps an American system. No, yeah, for uh, sure, for sure. It's, it's very different yeah. um, because, because our, our issue, or I guess our... Um, the decision in America, at least for the most part, is, oh, do I send my school to private school or do I just send my kid to public school? Mm. It's not a matter of like, oh, do I send them to, to school at all? Um, yeah. So it's really interesting to hear that perspective from you. And going off of that, um, what are some of the big things that you've learned by doing your six years of working in this field? Mm. Like, What are some things that really surprised you when you first jumped into this field? Sure. So there's three experiences I'd like to share with you. Two of them are linked to community work and education. And the one is actually more of a therapeutic kind of reflection. The first one is um, from a parent education perspective. I've seen the, I think I, I jumped into the working world, as I said, quite ambitious and very ready to, to change the world as, as any new, newly graduated social worker probably would. And I was in awe in many ways of how parents really do want to do what's right for their children. Um, and many parents lack support. And I think the field of parent support family services is not given the credit that it's due. But again, this actually starts linking into funding. So those business people out there that are listening, those future social impact investors that are out there, this is, this is a massive area of need because if we can get parenting right, we solve a lot of problems in the home, on the home front. And um, so my first kind of realization going into the working world 
was really that without the nonprofits, parent education would be for the elite only. Um, at least, well, in South Africa, again, I'm obviously talking within a certain context. And that could actually be true for, for America too, where the public health system is so burdened. Um, our, our public health system is so burdened with health issues that the idea of parent education is just not happening. There just isn't time to counsel and support that new mum that's breastfeeding or the single parent that's going through a divorce or the child who is adopted but is stealing things at school. These are massive, massive social issues that a social worker is trained to deal with, but there's so little investment going into parent education that we end up dealing um, and often spending money on the symptoms and not the underlying cause, which is often the need for parent support at home. So that was my first big aha moment um, of my career, I suppose, working in this field. And the next was that working in community was humbling and it also reminded me that there's no room for power when you're working in community. You really do have to kind of put down the idea that I as a professional know everything. Working in community is a very collaborative process and um, working hands on the ground was the best experience that I could have had in this regard because it reminded me that helping sometimes gets messy. Mm. I can think yeah. back to some examples of doing some parent workshops in schools that have no power but I had a PowerPoint presentation and I, I stood there thinking, well, what am I going to do now? Because my whole presentation right, yeah. needs to be projected onto a wall and, and there is no power here. Um, I'm talking about a, a rural community um, in, a, in a town called Butterworth. So maybe about three or four hours from a big city. Um, but this is the reality of what we are dealing with. And I think community workers are, again, not given the credit but to realize that just by laying down what we think is quality in some ways and reestablishing what a community can value, it's quite incredible. It's wild and wonderful and full of learning. But I think that was really um, such a, an awestruck moment for me, realizing that community is also about letting the people take charge and letting the, the communities run the programs rather than being led by me as a as a social worker because mm -hmm. oh, I have this new title um, and I think that's a hard process and, and some organizations would probably differ with me on this opinion but partners don't always have to be paid and community work is often about creating really valuable partnerships and I think here would be a point just to kind of tag into the story for people out there who are in business or studying towards starting their own businesses maybe they're entrepreneurs there is such value in partnering and collaborating with projects that are doing good in your community not only from a business model sense but just from building a community and we've seen companies really come to the fore and donate what they could when they could um, some things are very random and some things are quite amazing. But it's amazing to see that 
industry and business can contribute to community development. And that would be this aha moment I had when I realized that we actually don't have to rely on the government because there's this whole sector of impact investment and corporate social responsibility that can actually step up and be a part. So that would be my second um, reflection for you. And the third reflection was actually in my fourth year practical. I worked at a drug rehab, so I was really fortunate to have been able to gain some experience in the substance abuse area of um, social work. And it taught me many, many, many life lessons. Um, and I, I look back on that time and I know that there are unique individuals that are meant to be in, in the drug rehab space. I struggled a lot um, and I reflected a lot on the fact that it is very difficult to work with population with a population group um, that in some ways have been forgotten and left behind by society that I had very little connection to. And I think my, um, looking back, I'm so glad I had that experience because it really did open my eyes to how raw and real and hardcore the, the rehabilitation process is and how dealing with addiction is no joke. I have a lot of respect for social workers who go that route. Um, yeah, but just the, the value again of putting finances and funding and to, into quality services because rehabs can't just be fly-by-nights and maybe that's a, a call to action for someone who would be considering going into the um, rehab world or into the substance abuse space is that it's... Um, it's hardcore. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, hardcore. I, I can imagine. Um, and I, I like what you said about um, industries and businesses contributing um, to social work um, because of the many benefits that it'll um, benefit not only them but also the community. And yeah. going off of that, um, I think I think the government um, should also see the benefit in contributing to social work, such as education, just mm. because of. Um, just the massive amount of, of data that is out there saying um, that there's a definite link between um, the education of a, of a country and also the, the economic development of that country along with the, the democratization of that uh, country and just the overall well-being of that country really all stems from um, the education and the literacy of the citizens because w what makes up a country is the people in it and it's it's definitely a necessity um, for a country to become developed to become um, democratized and to be successful and and coming and especially for south africa that a country with its history and i'm, I'm not 100 percent knowledgeable of its history maybe that as much as you are but definitely from my perspective, I mean, South Africa is, I mean, more new to the, to the more, I guess, developed countries. It's, it's, it's a uh, constitution has been um, more recent than that of other uh, well-established first world countries. And I'd say they're definitely on the right path to becoming 
a more established country in um, democratization and also um, its economic power. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Um, um, whenever I whenever I think of South Africa, I I, I feel like uh, maybe fifty years ago people may have thought of it as a third world country, um, mm-hmm. and um, nowadays we we throw around the term first world country, third world country, but um, the term second world country has has really gone away. But I, I would I, I think I would say um, at least from my perspective um, that. Um, South Africa is one of those countries that's kind of in the middle of being a third world country and a first world um, country um, in that they're on that path to becoming more established and more economically profitable and just growing as a country. And, and, and you've seen major progress starting with um, what Nelson um, Mandela did um, and just establish, establishing that constitution. And I, th- I think, especially for an up and coming country like South Africa, that there needs to be a big emphasis on the foundation of the country, um, which is the education of its citizens. So I think the work that you're doing definitely impacts not just the people that you're um, interacting with, but the country as a whole, once the current generation now that is being educated will then fill in those um, those spots as um, having more influence in what the country actually becomes. Um, and going off of that, um, how, how do you think, I don't know, how, how would you say um, the development of South Africa has, has come um, so far? Yeah, I think we've made massive leaps. And just hearing you speak, it, it really does fill me with a lot of pride to be a South African because you are right, we've come a really far way um, since Nelson Mandela's time when all of a sudden black and white didn't need to matter anymore. And we really, that, that fight for reconciliation is very much a part and ingrained in South African history. I think from a economy perspective we've also come really far where because of apartheid I mean we had embargoes on our country and people wouldn't trade with us I mean I'm talking historically yeah, now, yeah, but we've, yeah. really, we've really come back and um, I, I'm very proud to say that there are huge gaps in our, our market where all of a sudden entrepreneurs are stepping up we have small and medium enterprises popping up every day offering incredible quality locally made services and products. And it's really incredible to see because it's, it's world-class. Um, South Africa is an incredible country to visit. You should all come and visit at some point when the, when the borders reopen because um, it's full of, of nature and wildlife um, and diversity. And we really do see that with, I mean, 11 official languages is no joke <laughs> when you're yeah. filling out a form and there's all these different languages to pick from. It's, it's really quite incredible to see a country that ingrained in its soil is diversity. And I think that will be part of our narrative going forward. And as our economy continues to grow and compete globally i think we are we are really competing which is quite quite amazing and um, we're moving forward with technology and um yeah we i think the the great term would be developing country we're a a country heading towards development and 
Um, social development is a huge part of that because of how critical the social fabric is. Um, and then the, you can't not talk about the economy and economics when you talk about social problems because um, it's so closely linked and livelihoods matter. Yes. And I think that was um, maybe if I was to jump almost back to one of your questions, but a realization I had very early on was I thought that being a social worker meant I didn't have to be political, but actually, <laughs> but actually politics is in everything and um, politics matter because economies matter. Mm -hmm. And if people are being disqualified or excluded from contributing or participating in a certain economy, you instantly have the social tension. And it's, that was this kind of aha moment where I realized that as a social worker, I actually did need to start to understand economy, the economy of scale, the economy of the poor, um, yeah. and the economy of my own profession, because without funding, um, it's difficult to help. So. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and you, you talked about earlier about how, how you had that, that PowerPoint um, for these um, parents. Um, so what exactly, like what specifically, I'm interested, like what are you teaching these parents? Like what would be in that PowerPoint if you could summarize that yeah. PowerPoint? Okay, so when talking with parents, there are some really kind of general domains or areas of parenting that we, we usually talk to as um, social workers. Mm -hmm. The first would be provision. So a parent should provide for, for their children. The next one would then be education and the role of education. Attachment, so building that connection and love of, with your child you'd be shocked at how little actually parents are encouraged to spend time quality time with their children through play or reading and um, parents are often so focused on work that they forget that like attachment then um, the, there's the social and cultural skills of learning to kind of assign yourself to a culture that has beliefs and norms it's those social cues of saying thank you and goodbye and good morning um, that parents are, are constantly training toddlers to say but but it's more than that it's also the idea of respect and sharing and um, the values that you instill often through role modeling is very very pertinent in this conversation with parents then the big topic, which I'll always say for towards the end of, of a presentation or a discussion, is the big topic of discipline, because discipline is a massive issue in the parenting world. Um, and just to have that debate of what discipline is, why we, why we discipline, and, and some practical tools that parents could use to discipline their children. Um, it always gets a little heated, so lots of fun. <laughs> Um, and then the role of bringing the family together as a whole. So utilizing the, the family system and not parenting alone is, is a crucial conversation to have. Would you, would you say um, the culture in South Africa is traditionally family oriented? Um, we have a term which might be interesting for you, that, that is, um, it's a causa term. So the term is Ubuntu. And Ubuntu means I am through other people. I am because of you. And instead of it being a family term, it's very much a community term. 
and African families have traditionally raised each other in tribes, communities of people, you know, local gatherings where you had a chief. Um, and I'm talking historically mm -hmm, also yeah. in some ways. Um, although, believe it or not, it still exists. Um, we have a, a community in, in Zululand where chiefs are very much still alive and, and in power in certain areas. So those ideas and ideologies are very present in South Africa where if you didn't have supper for your child, your neighbor would, mm. would be the idea. Or you wouldn't have to necessarily look after your child in the afternoon because he would inherently find the arms of someone and my child is being raised through someone else. But we mm. are all together raising each other's children. So Ubuntu, it's an incredibly deep term, but it's also lost a lot of its, um, I want to say, purity over the years. And I think it's been taken for granted. And there's a lot of mistrust in South Africa with that term. So it, it is important that I say that because then if you look to a more Western kind of culture, then you do see more sort of secular, circular families, orient mm -hmm. family orientation, which I would say in South Africa, it's difficult to say, oh, there's just one culture because we're dealing with so many cultures and so many influences. But right. The, the predominant idea is that you shouldn't have to parent alone. And I think that's something beautiful about Ubuntu, which has maybe been lost. Is the, And I think the Western world could learn a thing or two from a South African culture because parents are often alone and a new mum will tell you um, quickly <laughs> that they haven't seen anyone for weeks and they haven't slept and, you know, what do they do? And... Um, before, before long, they're in a heap of, of tears because actually you're the first person to ask them, how are they doing? Mm. And that's quite an incredible realization because actually we're living next to these people every day. So I hope that answered your question of culture. Um, I think modern families look different to how they have historically. And we see a lot more single-headed households in South Africa. We have an issue of child-headed households where the older children are left to look after the younger children. So there's an issue there. Um, and we're seeing families in some ways separated for work. And that's also a real challenge. So modern family looks different to, to I think, how culture would have long ago perceived a family to look like. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it common for both parents to be working? Um, yeah, very much so. I think gone are the days where a family can or a mother can just easily stay home with her child. And um, we have a, a large unemployment rate in South Africa. So it does depend on whether you're talking about kind of the underprivileged community or the privileged community. And I say that very loosely because it's difficult to define that. that. Mm -hmm. But um but yes, I, I know very few stay-at-home moms, whereas historically or in generations before us, that would have actually been a norm um, or expected. So I think as women are also empowered globally, there is this idea that you're building a career and a family and both are allowed. So 
don't necessarily right, right. see it as a bad thing, but um, it is definitely an interesting dynamic and starts to affect preschools <laughs> because all of a sudden the need for childcare is great irregardless mm -hmm. of your income. And that is a conversation to have. So, so you work in, in the education field almost um, very closely yeah. with it, at least. Um, yeah. What are some of the biggest problems that you see in that um, field? Sure. Um, I think a lack of early education is a huge issue because that translates into the older years. We see, um, I must think of the stats, but we see huge issues with reading for meaning. I'm not sure if um, America measures that, but in South Africa, we measure reading for meaning where you'll read something and then you must know what it means. But mm -hmm. we have... A huge, issues, a huge issue where 78% of grade fours, so that's about age 10 okay. learners, can't read for meaning in any language. So that's, that's uh, horrific. <laughs> um, yeah. We have about 3% of grade threes, so that would be, say, eight years old or so, eight or nine, um, who are performing at an appropriate level of maths. I mean, 6%, that's also yeah, very well. horrific. Um, and so, and a huge kind of underlying issue there, if we want to talk about problems, would then be lack of early education, um, poor nutrition, so, and, and health, affecting school attendance and affecting the ability to function and perform in school. And then um, lack of teacher training actually and unequipped teachers to actually deal with the math loads of classrooms that we're now facing um, or the masses of, of children in classes our average would be about 30 children in a government school classroom did you, did you say 50 oh 30 30 yeah 30. okay yeah that's that's so, still a lot yeah yeah, it's still a lot, um, particularly if you have children with special needs. And I think that yes. would then be another highlighted issue is we have a large, a long way to go um, and a large gap to fill in South Africa anyway to, to meet unique needs um, of children because it's either a sink or swim situation when you're in a class of 30. And, um, and poverty then becomes a challenge and again, I'm, of course, talking to a South African context. Right, but right. I think that is a challenge. We also see, um, and I'm talking now more broadly, in, encompassing sort of the, the private and the public schools here, but we actually see a huge issue where children are also receiving massive amounts of pressure to perform and to excel at school. Not that they shouldn't, but um, mental illness is definitely on the rise and anxiety in younger, we're seeing anxiety in younger and younger children, which um, give it a, a few years and we're going to start to see real impact of that, um, I think, on our schooling system for years to come. Yeah, I think, I think, um... You can already see evidence of that, in, at least in America, where um, there are every year there's always um, a number of suicides that are caused by um, anxiety and stress um, from trying to um, be successful academically um, in the education system. Um, and, and there's this um, 
um, big emphasis on um, education and university and doing well in secondary school and high school um, so that you can go to university and then get a degree and then get a job. It's kind of um, melded into the current American culture that we see today, um, this this big emphasis on um, education and, and being successful and that when, whenever someone um, isn't successful um, academically, um, it, it is a big toll on them uh, stress-wise and um, anxiety-wise, um, and it, it definitely causes um, mental issues. Um, and sometimes, you know, as, as you said earlier, um, that w- there's sometimes there's specific needs that specific kids need to be um, academically successful. Not everyone um, is, um, I guess, successful at the um, standardized education system that um, we know today. Um, everyone's a little different in their own way. Some people learn differently than other people. Um, so this this kind of um, one-size-fits-all education system that we have, at least in America, um, doesn't necessarily work for everyone. And when it doesn't work for that individual, it definitely causes some issues. So I, I think you identifying that, um, that increase in anxiety and stress um, is definitely a telling sign that um, there are definitely um, issues that come along later with that. Um, and I think that it, it is important to, um, it, yeah, it, as you said earlier, it is important to stress um, education, but I think there is also a point where it is, as you said, um, diminishing returns to where you can overstress it and actually cause more po- problems than good. Um, so it's interesting that you brought that up. Um, but um, on that note, um, I guess, so you, you said you work with children um, birth to six. Um, so do you work with the actual children as well or just parents and teachers? So I have, um, not currently, but um, I used to work for a nonprofit that did children's assessment and we were very hands on the ground with checking milestones. So to see, is a four-year-old achieving the milestones that a four-year-old should? And if not, where are the gaps? So that was very much a part of of the role that we had was the assessment of children. But my interest or kind of um, work experience did tend to lean more towards the adult education side of training the teachers and equipping the parents because of the direct impact they then have on children's learning. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So, so looking back on everything that you've learned throughout your career, um, do you ever look at your own life and be like, oh, my parents could have done this better or <laughs> that better? Um, I think definitely i think i do look back and see my my role models as being influential um but i must take my hat off to my parents for for doing a an incredible job and i think parents do the best they can with what they have um there's a term that goes around in parenting literature where it says um are you a good enough parent so instead of seeking to be the best parent are you good enough um, which I think in some ways is very much a, 
release for many parents because striving for perfection is impossible and I'm very grateful for a loving family but I have also seen again and I'm often reminded of just the importance of investing and building into the people around us and the people that we love and how I would like to continue that into my own family one day. For sure, for sure. So I know, I know you're pursuing your PhD currently. So um, what research are you doing for your PhD research hmm. exactly? So my PhD is in social work, mm-hmm. looking at early child education, but with a specific focus on principal management of these preschools and um, I'm taking a learning organizational approach to that. So I'm assuming and hoping to build this idea and argument that preschools are organizations just like any other, they learn and grow and the management skills that exist within these schools are, are essential. If there aren't management skills in a preschool, we have a problem because businesses because preschools are businesses actually and um, it's a difficult one because all of a sudden a a school is a service providing a constitutional right of education but it's also a service delivering business that has customers and consumers and is competing against the school down the street so um, my project is very much positioned in a in a social development context with this idea that we have preschools in South Africa that need growth and development, but without management skills, that won't happen. Um, Mm. Yeah. So that's my project. That's in a nutshell. Yeah. What are, I guess, some key um, attributes, skills, characteristics that are needed to be, to have successful, um, school I guess to have that management to be successful and to effectively um, nurture these children sure Um, well for the most part believe it or not it's the management skills of any business that would really be a backbone um, or any nonprofit really Um, you might have some some input from a business perspective but management and business skills become important those entrepreneurial skills that are necessary which could include communication um, because they're the principals are needing to communicate with their staff they're needing to communicate with parents and and communicate with children so that um, those interpersonal and softer skills become relevant but also the financial management skills of being able to budget and do projections, check expenses, um, allocate funding, manage HR, which are all part and parcel of what you would potentially learn if you went to business school. But most principals are teachers and they learn to teach. And so mm-hmm. that's, um, that's the need, where, where the need sits. Um, I think a principal does need to know about early education or whatever year they're they're principal of that school, if it's a high school, they would need to know about adolescence and what it looks like to teach an adolescent. I think um, the idea of classroom management does matter to a principal, but really what we're seeing in terms of sustainability of schools is that unless the principal is able to manage the finances and the facility well, 
then the school actually has a shelf life, which is mm. quite a scary thought. Yeah, actually. that is scary. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I know that um, you have a podcast of your own that you do. Um, um, so I'd like to hear just um, about that and like what kind of got you started with your own podcast. That's great. Thank you for that. Well, it was definitely how I found your podcast. So that's exciting. Um, so my podcast is called Relate Your Research. It's a podcast for social work researchers or social science researchers, essentially, hmm. looking into social topics and um, really allowing for a platform for researchers, mostly people who are in academics or who are doing research projects to be able to share their research in a meaningful way. Because often what we find, um, and I'm sure you will find this on, in America too, but a lot of research just sits on the shelf. It's confined to pen and paper and um, researchers are needing large amounts of funding and um, massive networks to be able to get published. The, the idea of publish or perish is frightening um, <laughs> to an early researcher. And yeah, I really felt that by starting a podcast, it would be a unique and um, equitable way of allowing access where it could freely be available. Why can't we have these amazing conversations about social issues over a podcast? And the timing was great. Obviously, the, the world came to a standstill and all of a sudden I was able to podcast more than ever before. And so I'm quite in awe of, so you asked me, what is my podcast about? I'm in awe of the ability to talk about social issues um, at a time when we're about to head into more social issues than the world has, has known previously um, because of the, the impact of health. And so that's really exciting. Um, I don't really confine my topics other than it really is a, a social science space. And I, I've done a few ECD podcasts. So that's also quite exciting for me because it's obviously my field of speciality. Yeah. yeah. So, so you talk about um, research and being published and, and whatnot. So I, from from being in South Africa, the, the research. I mean, do you do you read a lot of research, uh, just papers? Yeah. Yourself? Do you? I, do. <laughs> I have a question. Do these research research papers are they mostly um, from researchers in South Africa, or do you find that they're from other places, such as such as America, the UK, or such like that? Yeah, we're definitely seeing um, more South Africans become published um, I would say there is there is a pool of, of researchers that are publishing and that's really exciting um, but generally I would say the the airtime and the talking space on paper is definitely um, hinging maybe more so in the the UK and the US side um, and from a developing country perspective we would I would also often um, reference an American article mm -hmm. and say, well, this is what the developing countries are doing. Here's a South African perspective on that or context on that. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really unique space for this podcast um, because if you're a researcher in whatever field you are in, it's really interesting to bring the perspectives of other countries with unique and different contexts um, because it challenges your own ideals and um, in some ways instills and 
challenges for innovation. And I think that's really where, where I'm hoping my podcast will go, is really allowing young researchers, old researchers, people in academics to enter the, the platform, but make the research relatable to a parent who would be curious to hear more about attention deficit disorder or a, a mother whose child has gone to university for the first time and now they're experiencing separation anxiety or, um, or a father who lost a child and doesn't know how to deal with that loss. And there, there are papers and research being done um, about this. And so it's really exciting. Disabilities is a huge topic that South Africa all of a sudden is starting to talk about. Um, so that's exciting. And I had someone on my podcast, I think it's episode two, where we were talking about neoliberalism. So this idea of a global market impacting um, us on the ground as social workers trying to do good. And those topics are, are hot, they're spicy, <laughs> and they have, um, there's a lot to be said. So that really is my kind of agenda there. Yeah, yeah I, I like what you've done with your podcast in that um, making um, research relatable because, um, as you said, it, research does oftentimes just sit on the shelf and just sit there and not really um, be used that much for, for multiple reasons. One, um, these research articles are um, not the easiest things to read and to understand, um, especially if you don't have a science background. Um, and it can, there's just a lot of jargon, there's a lot of words, um, especially nowadays, people, at least my age, have, <laughs> have, have very little attention, a little attention <laughs> span. So they start reading the, the intro and be like, oh, wow, this is like seven pages long. Yeah, like, I'm not going to do this right now. And they never get around to it. But, but the information and the findings in these research papers are oftentimes um, interesting and definitely um, necessary to, to know just to apply to your life and to the lives around you. Um, so I think it's definitely, and I, I would definitely prefer having someone read this one research paper and then just tell me like a summarized version of like five cents of what that whole research was about and just tell me what the findings were. Um, so I think it's really cool what you're doing there with making the research relatable. Um, I definitely, um, and you see it a lot in textbooks in that um, a lot of textbooks of social sciences, even psychology, sociology, even communications, um, these textbooks will um, be like, oh, um, only 19% of this group does this per this study. And it, it does such a great job of summarizing that entire um, research study in mm -hmm. a couple sentences. And then I'll, I'll go look at this. I'll actually look up the actual research article that they got this information from. And it'll give me this big seven, 10 page research article. And I'd be like, wow, like this textbook really boiled down this whole thing to... Um, three sentences but it is it is cool to understand um what went into certain studies but again sometimes it's just the attention span's not there sometimes it's hard to understand what is actually going on with the, with the jargon with the terminology so i think it's really cool what you're doing there in making um research relatable to everyone and making it more um comprehensible to people 
Thank you. I appreciate that. I think, yeah, it's really very much the heart and the idea to preserve learning is, I think, moving in, into a digital and te technological space. So I'm proud to be what I feel is one of the few South African social workers on a platform like this. So really exciting. Do you, do you see yourself um, doing your podcast long term or do you think this is just a hobby that you picked up for the meantime? I would like it to be long term. Um, I think the best answer for this would be that I would like my podcast to grow organically. So mm -hmm. I will continue to produce content as long as there are interesting topics and, and listeners who are interested in um, hearing about it. I think that seasons of life do change and the beauty of podcasting is that it, it can be organic, but I would like to continue doing this podcast ongoingly. Have you seen it influence your own life anyway? I have. I have learned the value of sound. <laughs> <laughs> I have learned the value of quality sound and, and recording, um, but I've also really just seen how all of a sudden I am challenged to listen more than I am to speak. Um, I'm, I mentioned this to you previously when we spoke, but there is this idea of being a podcaster that you need all the answers and that's actually not true. Podcasting is very much about having these conversations about topics you've never heard of and um, daring to engage about, on them. And I think that's been quite influential on in my own life and my own academic career, just realizing that I can tackle topics that I don't know about because that's the point of learning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also been really exciting to hear feedback from people, some that I know and some that I don't, about the podcast. So to say, wow, we really enjoyed that, or I wish the speaker had spoken for longer because I was so interested in his topic about traditional healing, mm -hmm. or oh, wow, um, my sister has a disability, and it was so lovely to hear, you know, your your um, interviewer speak about or interviewee speak about disabilities because no one talks about this so I've really seen that um, opportunity for for conversations and I think that's been quite kind of it's left an impression on me yeah yeah I think I think um, I think kind of what you said um, encompasses the field of science in that um, if we don't really know about something why don't, why don't we just ask and look at the research that other people have done and kind of even build off of that um, and just to I think that's why um, science is um, is open for everyone it's public it, we, we want everyone to contribute to it and make it better so we have a better understanding of our world and, and kind of bringing that um, aspect into um, research studies um, there's a lot of um, published researches research that um is not free to the public and requires you to actually have an account with this website or whatnot and have a subscription to access certain research articles so what what do you think about that um that kind of almost um barrier in a sense to yeah. knowledge um and, and I'm sure other people have seen this barrier and have talked about whether research should be um, free to everyone because it is science, it is knowledge, or um, again, but the, the scientists do need some sort of, of revenue and income to continue doing the work that they're doing. So what do you think is a good 
I guess, middle ground to one, the scientists needing the revenue and the money that they get from um, publishing papers, but also the, the value that these papers have and that certain people are not able to obtain um, this knowledge because of monetary restrictions. Sure. Well, now you're asking a question. <laughs> um, so this question, I think, has multiple layers to it, some of which you've unpacked in the question itself. But I strongly believe that education should be as freely accessible as possible. I think we're in a time or an era of, of life where you education and knowledge and inf information should be accessible because otherwise we create these inequality gaps and we see that time and time again. Um, I love the idea of open source and I'm always so encouraged when an article is open source because it makes me feel like I, like you said, I didn't need to be part of this elite club to get access mm -hmm. to it. Um, and that feeling of despondency when the website says, you must pay for this paper. And I'm just like, all I need is the intro. <laughs> all I need <laughs> is um, So there is that very life real moment that I can have with the listeners. And I'm sure someone's laughing because that was them at some point. Mm -hmm. Because I must this particular journal, like just not allow me access no matter yeah. what, what route I go. Um, so I think there definitely is an, an argument and a space for that. And I think what could be a valuable answer to this, although it doesn't completely answer your question is, I wish we could reimagine and rethink the way that funding is directed towards research. So instead of funding being only through academic papers mm -hmm. while they're not other revenue sources or, or ways of collecting revenue for for that study um and I, i'm talking to an answer i don't completely understand but right. why can we not innovate the way we see finance of academic knowledge yeah mm, that, yeah that's interesting um do you have any ideas off the top of your head of other? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you're, you, you realize you're asking the social worker here. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I, I, could, I can help you with your child discipline issue, but reimagining finance, um, in some ways, I'd leave it to the economists. But I also think that researchers and students need to start thinking entrepreneurially. We can't expect that the older systems of creating revenue are going to necessarily be the way we create revenue in the mm. future. Um, mm -hmm. COVID-19 is a perfect example. I was meant to be in a conference, well, going to a conference at the end of this month, which could have been incredible from a, I want to say inverted commas, revenue perspective, but you, that untapped potential yeah. to, um, to make um, networks and to grow your network and to create partnerships, which I now cannot go to because the conference was canceled, mm -hmm. is now calling me to rethink the way that I network within my field for this year anyway, because we, there definitely won't be mass gatherings for the next while. Um, and so how do I partner? How do I generate income without needing to use the traditional formats? So... I'm not completely answering your question, but I think it is a challenge for us, no matter what field you're in, to start to think entrepreneurially and a little bit of out-the-box thinking never hurts anyone. For sure, for sure. 
Well, thank you for um, joining me on, on my show. I really enjoyed the conversation that we had. Um, I think it definitely shed some light on what social work really means and um, the, the effects that it has on um, the community, the society, and the country as a whole. Um, and I think it's really awesome what you're doing. Um, I... Um, I encourage you to keep going um, and to keep, and I hope you do um, successfully finish your PhD. I'm sure you will. Um, that's a lot of school though, and, and you're almost done. I encourage you to just push forward and um, finish strong. Um, again, um, to my listeners out there, um, check out Relate Your Research, um, a social work research podcast um, hosted by Jessica Ranasin. Um, nice. And where, where, can, where can my listeners find uh, your podcast on? What platforms? Yeah, so um, I'm on Apple Podcasts. I'm on Spotify. Um, we have in South Africa um, Player FM. I'm not sure if you have Player FM, but I'm on Player FM. And um, my hosting platform is Iona FM. So if they just check out some of my social media, there's loads of easy, quick links. And yeah, I'd, I'd really welcome listeners from America um, and any feedback. I think there's always such value in having these conversations and um, to drop me a mail, always, always open to, to the conversation. Yeah, I'll, I'll put your um, email in the, in the description if anyone would like to drop your email. Um, so thank you again for joining me. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'll definitely have to, we'll have to do this again because there's a lot more stuff I'd like to cover um, more specifically in um, just what you've done throughout your career. That's great. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. Okay.